Stoker Festival in Dublin, Ireland, this is Fangs. We all know the story of Dracula. Transylvanian vampire wants to move to London, feast on blood and continue the undead curse. But he's chased back to his castle in Transylvania by Van Helsing and co, stabbed in the heart and turns to dust. Spoilers. And even though Dracula is killed, he still kind of managed to find immortality in pop culture. In the 121 years since Bram Stoker's novel was first published, it has been adapted into film, TV, video games, theatre, opera, musicals, puppets, cartoons, comics, literature, any medium you can think of, Dracula has thrown his cloak over. Dead. Undead. I don't care. They all frighten me. And that's what this series is all about. Each episode will dive into a different pool of blood or medium, that Stoker inspired. And today, Dracula on film. But before we fire up the projector and make fun of Keanu Reeves' accent, who is Stoker? I've come here to Trinity College Dublin, where Stoker was once a student, to ask Dr. Jarlath Killeen, a lecturer in Victorian literature. Jarlath, 35 seconds on the clock. Who was Bram Stoker? Okay, so he was a Dubliner. He was a middle-class Protestant family were civil servants and he was a civil servant by training. He was also a theatre critic and he became a theatre manager to probably the most famous actor in Victorian Britain, Sir Henry Irving. The most famous melodramatic gothic actor I suppose in, in the period and he became his manager and he moved from Dublin to London halfway through his life and he stayed over in London then for the rest of his life mostly managing Irving's career and managing the Lyceum Theatre in London, which was Irving's Theatre. Huh, nice job. These days, if you ask people on the street what Bram Stoker's name is synonymous with, they will answer... Dracula. 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 Frankenstein. Well, at the time, he wasn't really famous for Dracula. Dracula was, a, what you call, I suppose, a moderate success. It did sell, sell quite well and got good reviews. But when you read his obituaries, what is really mentioned there is his work, his two-volume memoir of Sir Henry Irving. Everyone thought that's what he was going to be remembered for, and including himself. He thought that that was his best work, his most important work, because Irving was so crucial in that period. And it was really only with the adaptations of Dracula in the 1920s and 30s onwards that Stoker became best known, really, for the writing of this vampire novel. And even then, it wasn't. It was Dracula that's best known, not Stoker. A lot of people have never heard of Bram Stoker, but everyone has heard of Dracula all over the world. Which brings us to Dracula on film. Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall? <coughs> Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall in a smoky cinema with two film critics? Good, because you're about to. Fire up the projector! I'm Tara Brady, I'm a film critic at the Irish Times. I'm John McGuire and I'm the film critic for the Sunday Business Post. The intriguing thing about Dracula's first cinematic adaptation is that it was actually kind of a knockoff. In 1922, when German director called F.W. Murnau cast an actor called Max Schweck, who was a mysterious man then and became increasingly mysterious mm -hmm. later, and they made a completely unauthorised, abridged version of Dracula called Nosferatu in 1922 in Germany. And it became a sensation. And very quickly, actually, in London, the estate of Bram Stoker, his widow and the rest of his estate, 
caught wind of what Myrna was up to. The film was released in Germany and in France and a couple of other European countries. And then the Stokers came in and tried to shut it down and successfully did mm -hmm. petitioned at the High Court for copyright infringement. Orlock, as he was known and as Shrek played him, was Dracula. And the story was the story of Dracula with a few things changed. And she shot him down and the film was lost, almost, almost lost. But a copy or two, a print of or two of it was saved. The rest of them were destroyed. I mean, you're talking about two or three hundred prints of the film were destroyed. It was rescued by one or two projectionists. As far as I know, no, I might be wrong on that, but as far as I know, a couple of projectionists kept copies of it because they were so entranced by it. It's a wonderful film. And for me, the best of all vampire movies. And its eerie power only increases with age. And it's a film before Dracula. It's a film made before fangs and capes and bouffant hair and hypnotic eyes and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it imagines Dracula, Orlock, as a creature, as an animal with bat-like ears and claw-like hands and rodent teeth. And it's a film that believes in vampires. Shrek and Murnau believe in this character and what he does. It's not supernatural really at all. It's, his intention in the film is to be completely natural. And that makes it very scary. Yeah, it's interesting because if you remember, there was a film out in 2000 called Shadow of a Vampire, which supposed that Max Schreck was, in fact, as played by William Dafoe in the film, was a real vampire. But there is, it's an incredible piece of work, not just because it has those like high German expressionism shadows all over it. It's really, really monstrous. I mean, there's a real sense of monstrosity about it. Um, and the fact that Schreck was this really mysterious guy who like to go walk in the woods for reasons nobody could discern just adds to the kind of mystique around the film. And I feel very sorry, I think, in the end for Florence Balcombe, who was Bram Stoker's widow, because she had licensed out Dracula to be a play and she ended up not seeing a penny of that. And you kind of wonder if she hadn't been so hard line, why did she have been able to negotiate and, you know, get, get a little bit of money back from Nosferatu? I am Dracula. A couple of years later, in 1931, Dracula would arrive to Hollywood. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood. But I think we should give some love to Bella Lugosi as well um, from 1933, the Todd Browning version at this point as well, because certainly the way that it was marketed um, towards the public, they genuinely made, went along with the idea that, that, that these were real creatures somewhere in Eastern Europe. They very much played up on the fact that, you know, he was a Hungarian actor. They played up on his, his very, very Slavic features. The vampires at that point, certainly in any of the films he was in, and he played the, he played that character right through to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in 1948 and then had to go back and do it on theatre because no one wanted to see him do anything else but Dracula because he was, he was Bela Lugosi and he, before he ended up drifting into Ed Wood films for for his for his penance, but there was definitely that idea that he was he was a scary creature because it's otherness, it's kind of xenophobic fear, and they work that very much into into all those pictures through the thirties. I think it's Orientalism, really. Mm -hmm. It's this notion that there is a whole world over there that we're not fully aware of. We know we might 
be able to point it out on a map, but it contains people that we can't understand. And when they come here, whether it be magically on ships or whether they flap in on bats or whatever it might be, that once they're here, they're going to do strange and funny things to us. They're going to change us in some way. They're going to either change our essential nature through biting us on the neck, or they're going to be some kind of a malign or benign, malign rather, influence on what we're trying to do. Yeah, and it is in that pre-war period as well. So there's an idea running through that Europe is like divided between these kind of huge ideologies, and and that that definitely impacts. That. The thing that Browning did quite consciously in the film was nail all the cliches before they became cliches. And he does it in such a way that fits so naturally to Stoker's original narrative that it was impossible later to, to change them. it. Yeah. Now they can change certain things. You can have a blackula or you can have a, you know, a female vampire or you can have whatever it might be in, your, in terms of your little nuances and change. But the fundamentals and your plot and your progress through the story hasn't, hasn't really changed ever since. You're impossibly fast and strong. Your skin is pale white and ice cold. Your eyes change color. And sometimes you speak like, like you're from a different time. I wonder though how much of the how much of the twilight and also the true blood and all all that kind of total saturation of of pretty teenage vampires comes down to Anne Rice. I think it's significant that Anne, Anne Rice really takes the idea of the vampire away from what Stoker was doing and makes it into these kind of beautiful super people and and rock stars and uh, and immortal kids that are having this great time all of the time uh, and who in the Neil Jordan version are, are you know played by like the most incredible looking batch of actors on earth. Yeah, absolutely. The and handsomeness is <laughs> it's just dazzling. It's blinding. Yeah. And because I I think it's interesting because for me the real turning point is the John Badham version of Dracula which which in many ways is my favourite Dracula yeah. because I do, like like just Franklin Gala is just like the sexiest coolest Dracula ever I love the big sex scene they have on the wedding night where it's you know red lasers and, and things being projected all over the place it's and just go floating. Dracula it's just I mean it's, it's just all so like preposterously fabulous every time he you know walks into a room the cape flicks back the his hair, hair his back. hair is like his a hair is masterpiece so, it's luxuriant it's like, a, it's like a streamlined train from the 1930s it's so perfectly bouffant it's amazing it's amazing yeah he's wearing the hell out of that cape he's wearing the hell out of that hair but yeah like i mean so i i wonder how much of that fed off of Anne Rice's book which had come out if you remember in 76 and I now mind you it wasn't it wasn't one of those books that was a huge blockbuster at the point where it came out it was a book that built its following very very slowly but it's really only after Anne Rice that you start getting movies like The Lost Boys and on into the twilight years when it becomes all that that you get Mm. um and all the all the vampires are 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 kind of silly and pretty and, and, and teenage, even though they're 180 years old. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. Another version of Dracula on film that a lot of people will have a fondness for is Christopher Lee's portrayal of the character across several Hammer horror films. There's too many of them. 
It's impossible to distinguish. There, there are there are just too many. There are, and there's there's a few of them that were made unofficially, and it get it all gets very very messy. I think the the Hammer Horrors. I think like well, Christopher Lee makes such a great double act with Peter Cushing's mm. Van Helsing. I mean, they they work really well together. Towards the end, they must have been sighing as as they. Can you imagine what 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 the energy was like on the set of Dracula 1972? I I, yeah. I, I, I it must have like been been like having the air sucked out of the room every time he turned They become less work. about the character and the story than they come become endurance tests for actors and become almost a point of fascination in audiences to say, can they do it again? And you really empathise, not with the vampire and the curse that he's been cursed with, or you don't empathise with the vampire's victims and you don't empathise with mm. anybody other than the actual actor going through the motions in these things, that they would have had to do it 15 or 20 times. But I liked the story in 1970 where... Jesse Franco, who was a fairly well-established exploitation director at the time, enlisted Lee with the promise to make a absolutely authentic and unabridged Dracula. Page by page, apparently, was the promise. And then completely reneged on it, almost immediately, from day one. And it's the, if you need to distinguish it, it's the Dracula where Christopher Lee has this elaborate moustache, which must surely have tickled the necks of his victims as he lent closer in they lay supine on their beds you can dream it but how Franco approaches it is with Klaus Kinski's Renfield Kinski plays Renfield in Franco's Dracula in 1970 and he never utters a word he gives the occasional shriek and the occasional gasp of anguish this is a silent Renfield and there's a lot of hippie ideas in the film but the Stuff that carries forward is the fact that in 1970, Lee played Dracula four times. He made four Dracula films in 1970 alone. One More Time, ironically, was one of the films that's called One More Time. Yeah. Uh, there's Taste the Blood of Dracula and Scars of Dracula. And interestingly, Franco's Dracula is the only one up to that point and the only one we would have for 30 years before Coppola resurrected the idea where Dracula starts as an old man and becomes younger as the film goes on. In fact, Lee's moustache gets you know, blacker and blacker and bushier and bushier as the film goes on. And that's a really interesting concept that plays at the heart of what Dracula is really all about. Sex and rebirth and death and blood and transference and all that kind of stuff. These kind of things that keep you awake at three o'clock in the morning if you you know, that kind of despair that can set in with these significant human emotions. And although Lee at that point must have been playing the character at the absolute, you know, edge of his exhaustion, mm -hmm. he couldn't have had anything more to give to it. Still in that film, there are elements that carry forward the idea and set it up for another film and set it up for another film. And they don't, they don't kill Dracula. They give it an opportunity to continue and to keep to keep going forward. I think Lee brings an enormous amount of theatricality to it, though. You can see that, like you know, classic English theatre training, and he does so much with you know the the way he uses his eyes. He's a great Dracula for reaching out the hand and and using the mind control technique by using a little twist of the hand and things. And he does that stuff incredibly well. Welcome to my house, Count Dracula. I am Dracula. Enter freely. Of your own will. I can't remember what exact number he puts on it, but Lee himself insists that he only ever played Dracula something like four times, <laughs> and that and that all the others were something else. Um, there's one French production where he says he turned up to play a vampire, and he wasn't supposed to be called Dracula at all. So he's got all these various excuses to to wriggle out of the very many Draculas that that he did, and he also doesn't like to talk about it generally. 
Yes, but the, here we're getting very close to a key concept with Dracula on screen, which is typecasting. It could have happened to Max Schreck if he had lived long enough or he'd made enough films. It definitely happened to Bela Lugosi. Mm -hmm. It definitely happened to Christopher Lee. And it could have happened to actors like Robert Pattinson very easily if Pattinson wasn't, surprisingly, a better actor, yeah. you know, uh, than, than, you know, Twilight would let you believe. There is something about the costume, the cape, the teeth, the hair, the hypnotism, the changing into a bat that lends itself to repetition, that lends itself to an actor being trapped by it. They are very powerful symbols and once an actor puts them on, it can be very hard for them to take it off again. There are only a few roles in film where an actor could fall into a trap like that so quickly and so easily. I, I think it's actually wor it's worth mentioning the Coppola one in this respect because, you know, while we're saying that you know, Dracula was more or less codified by the time the 30s came along and then, it, you know, it, and the rules just became increasingly rigid, I think Coppola did do something visually with it. He certainly, certainly the um, Ico Ishkoida costumes totally reinvented how, how yeah. we think Still about, gorgeous, yeah. about, about Dracula. I mean, they were really ravishing costumes. Uh, and then you th this really outlandish kind of performance by Gary Oldman and again it's a completely romanticised rather than sexualised it's a romanticised Dracula which harks back to a 1975 version that was made in Italy where they had that idea of Dracula and mortal love it has various different names that film yeah. but it's this idea that he's like you know this the this world's greatest lover undying love through the ages uh, not lover actually like love you know the, the emotion as, know opposed, mean, as opposed yeah. to the deed a romantic love yeah. uh, so, so there is I suppose that idea running through it I mean I think the main problem with that film is that he's so much better than everybody else on screen especially when the other so, when yeah. the other people are Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder but but it's it was still an amazing looking movie to watch a romance exactly and it's like being smothered by an enormous red duvet the experience of watching it is so suffocating almost and it's a lot to do with setting and light and the artificiality of what Coppola is trying to do. He knows it's a drama. He knows it's a pretense. He knows that it's a story. And through things like light and costume and movement and shadow and all those kind of old tricks that Murnau would have known all about, he tells you the story in a slightly different way, just enough to make it kind of hip at, you know, for the early 90s. It's still, I would watch it again. And, you know, there are a few of the Dracula movies that I would watch again, but I'd watch that one. But I have already died. And I never drink wine. There's been so many adaptations of vampire movies inspired by Dracula that I couldn't resist wondering out loud... Which is the worst? Oh, I, I, I know the answer to this definitively. <laughs> um, uh, Dominic Purcell in in Blade. You know, you're, you and it's you know this build up that you're you're waiting for Dracula to appear, and it's a bit like there's there's a film, a, a really really trashy film called Dracula's Dog, or sometimes called Zoltan Hound of Hell. And, oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, you know the dog is it has the stake pulled by its heart by a stupid character, and then the dog and Dracula's former assistant go off to look for the last descendant of Dracula. Okay. The last, the last yeah. descendant of Dracula is a guy in an RV called Michael Dracula, which is just <laughs> the, which is just one of the great... But also the nonsense of them going after this guy because he's driving his two children around in the RV despite being the last of the line. I mean, it just doesn't make a lick of sense to say nothing of the fact that the dog tries to recruit other dogs in its quest. Okay. You know, as that opposed sounds pretty to, good, actually. <laughs> you know, 
you describe as opposed them? to a person. So there's a really long sequence, for example, where the dog can't open a doorknob because all of his assistants are other dogs. Okay, should yeah. have recruited a human with yeah, that's, that, that, thumbs. That, that, that would have been nice. But I, th- I think it's interesting, the last few years have not been good years for Dracula at all. Since the Coppola version, like no one's really managed to break through. The Jared Butler version, Dracula 2000, was an absolute disaster. Van Helsing in 2004 oh, shocking, was, yeah. was, was a disaster. But even the most recent one with Luke Evans, was it Dracula Unbound? Dracula, Dracula Unbound. Untold. Dracula Untold, Untold. yeah. Yes. Okay. Sorry, I'm getting um, mixed up with the Frankenstein one but Dracula Untold and they, you know they spent a lot of money on that and you know it made 200 million but they spent more Did than it, it made, well, spent more than 200 million because it was supposed to be the big launch platform for the new Universal, Universal horror films yeah. and that they the were, monster and, universe and every, sing, every single one of them has been a disaster well that, there is something fundamentally flawed in a modern interpretation of Dracula that sticks to Stoker's original vision in that where is the room for you to find something new? And it's almost impossible. Every gap has been closed by now. Mm -hmm. Every possible angle has been seen. You need to look slightly outside of that to find what the second derivations are. And I think something like Let the Right One In, the Thomas Alfredson movie from nearly 10 years ago now, is a wonderful bringing forward of the curses inherent in vampirism the kind of awfulness of it and bring it forward into a contemporary setting with, you know, all the, you know, brilliant performances and dialogue and the great setting and mm-hmm. camera work and editing and everything else that goes into a movie. But at the core of it is this awful curse, this tar- terrible thing that infects it and everything around it. I think though that because it's the children are the main characters as well, it kind of takes the compulsory sex angle out of it. Or, you it know, does, it, yeah. It leaves it that kind of... It's a priest, tainted innocence yeah, rather yeah. than a, something which, carnal. Which, yeah. which, which, which really works very well. And that, that does allow it a kind of a, a, a novelty. But also that idea of mortality and outliving the people that you've been you know, living with for... For, the, for their entire life and that you have to replace them. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's almost like the relationship a human has with their animal companions. And I, I think that's, that's a really interesting idea as yeah. well that's worked into it. So to answer your question, Liam, they're all dreadful now because there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> there isn't anywhere else to go. Uh, Dracula has done his time specifically in Stoker's original vision. It lasted 150 years. I think it's remarkable. You look at the Victorian Gothics at the time, there's only a small handful of them that have had the same kind of longevity, and none of them at all have had the same number of repetitions and iterations over the decades. And, you know, there's something really... That's a testament to the power of the original story and also the kind of stuff that frightens us, that Stoker could identify something that was truly frightening, that would get right into you, wasn't just dressed up by spooky castles and cobwebs and pointy teeth. That was actually something really scary. There is one more film appearance of Dracula that I need to mention for its sheer bizarreness. And that appearance takes place in the 2008 film Forgetting Sarah Marshall, starring Jason Siegel. Siegel plays a character who's working on a Dracula-based rock opera involving puppets called A Taste for Love. It's getting kind of hard to believe things are going to get better. I've been drowning too long to believe that the tide's going to turn. <laughs> In the movie, Jason's character was 
just dumped by his girlfriend. So in his sorrow and isolation, he creates this Dracula musical. That's Julianne Busher, a Muppet performer who is one of the puppeteers in the movie. And I'm trying not to laugh because it, is, it actually is, you know, touching and serious. And but that's what makes this movie so funny. You know, he goes off and he, he, he for a while, he meets this wonderful girl. But then he produces this musical and he looks out in the audience at the, at the grand finale. And there she is. And it's this beautiful moment. And <laughs> but the musical is amazing and hilarious. And if I see Van Helsing, I swear to the Lord, I will slay him. Ah, 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 he'd take you from me, but I swear I won't let it be so. A couple of years after this movie came out, Jason Segel would go on to write and star in a new Muppet movie. But at this point, no one knew how much Segel was a fan of the Muppets and puppetry, at least not the Muppet performers drafted in to work on Forgetting Sarah Marshall. I had no idea how much he loved the Muppets. And I should have known. Who doesn't love the Muppets? That didn't come out till later that he was a Muppet fan because his massive giddiness and excitement was, right now, it was this bubble of his Dracula musical, which he had always wanted to produce. Die. 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 He was so, so happy to be around us and just asking all of us these questions about puppeteering and the world and what do you do, and I've never seen a star that excited and just welcoming us and embracing us and wanting to be part of that of the puppet world it was it was beautiful this is a song that i never thought i would write on the night i'm dying sorry for all the wrong i've done i finished trying it was a wonderful dream now let him come and slay me it was so much fun to film. I think partly for me also because I've always been a massive Dracula vampire Halloween fan. And just to see this take on that, that you know, beautiful book, it was, it was incredible. I I'd never thought I'd see anything like it. I think it worked. I don't know. The way that book is written, Dracula, it's so ripe to be taken in so many directions and, and reimagined. I think this was this was the best. What have I done? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that's the that's the main thing that everybody remembers from that movie. It was just <laughs> magical and hilarious. Watch out for Bill Hader as Van Helsing in that. So I think it's fair to say that Bram Stoker and Dracula have had an incredible influence over cinema that continues today. That about wraps things up. But on our next episode, we'll be delving into Dracula-inspired illustration and animation. And uh... I'll take it from here. Yes, Master. Thongs was produced and hosted by Liam Garrity. The theme music was composed by Spencer Thune. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review in blood and Bite your friends. <laughs> I, I mean, 
Tell your friends. See BramStokerFestival.com. <laughs> Get me a copy of Dracula's Doglium. I've never heard of that one.